Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome to Putting On the Mind of Christ. Each week at this time, we go into the Ave Maria CD archives and pull down a talk or two to see what our Lord might have to say to us. Many of these talks are recorded at area conferences. Most of the speakers are nationally known, but some have been recorded by a brother or sister sitting in front of or behind you at Mass. Ave Maria Radio presents this program of God's Word to His people. Regular listeners to this program know that we fairly regularly use talks recorded at men's and women's group meetings. We have a men's group talk on this program, and as we approach the Feast of Pentecost, we also have excerpts from a rite of election performed this last Lent by His Excellency Carl Mengling, the Bishop of the Diocese of Lansing. Men's and women's groups play an important part of the lives of a growing number of brothers and sisters. One such group is at St. Patrick's Church in Brighton, Michigan. They meet monthly for Mass, fellowship, and a talk. Last November, Father Larry Richards drove in and spoke to the men. We featured Father Larry on this program after he spoke at the Michigan Home Educators Conference last summer. Father Richards is the pastor of St. Joseph Church in the Bread of Life community in Erie, Pennsylvania. He's a very popular and dynamic speaker who apparently loves to drive. That's how he gets to most of his speaking engagements. He presents the word in an no-holds-barred fashion. Men seem to love him. Women seem to be more reserved in their opinion. Father Larry's title today is Truth. We'll be back with Father Larry Richards right after these messages. This is Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Father Larry Richards was the Mass celebrant and speaker at the men's group meeting at St. Patrick's Church in Brighton, Michigan in November 2006. We'll begin this program with his homily. And when the men would come in the confession, they would sit there and say, Father, I've been struggling with the same sin. I said, stop. What? Start again. Father, I've been struggling. I said, stop. What? Start again. Father, I've been stop. <laughs> okay, Father. You tell them to be mad. And I'd say, what are you saying? Well, I'm trying to say it, Father. And I'm saying you're saying, Father, I've. And see, that's the problem. That we try to bring the kingdom upon ourselves. And we try to bring the kingdom. And we try to build up our own kingdom. But the only, there's only one kingdom that all of us can build, and that's the kingdom of Christ, who lives within us. And so what has to happen is our job, gentlemen, is to die. 
is to give away our life so that Christ may live inside of us. So bring the kingdom of heaven, not out there, but in here. But that'll cost you your life. And again, Christianity in these last 20, 30 years have become wimpy for men. You know, you become effeminized. You know, we make Jesus, oh, Jesus was so nice and gentle. And we picture him tiptoeing through the tulips. You know, it is Lala, Christ. But Christ was a man who laid down his life. Who said, I'm going to have to suffer and I'm going to have to die. That's what he said. And if you and I are going to follow him, we're going to have to suffer and we're going to have to die. When I do these conferences... I'll sit there and say, you know, if you go around and you want to be, you know, again, men, they'll sit there and say, I want to be a great football player and be a great basketball player. I was at Cathedral Prep, an all-boys school, for eight years. One of my old students is here. It kind of freaks me out. But anyway, here and I'd sit there and say to these guys who are state football champs, basketball champs, everything else, and they would spend, believe this, four hours a day in practice. Every year I'd walk in there and I'd say, gentlemen, what are you going to do this year? And the guys would say, we're going to be state champions, Father. Whoa. What are you going to do to be state champions, gentlemen? And you know what they did? Four hours a day. Now, if I ask those same kids, what are you going to do this year? We're going to be state champions, Father. I'd say, what are you going to do to prove that to me? And if they'd say, well, we're going to go to practice for about 45 minutes to an hour, once a week, depending on who the coach is, and we're going to have good thoughts about the game. I'd say, eh, wrong answer, gentlemen. But those same gentlemen I would ask every year, Gentlemen, do you want to go to heaven? Yes, Father! They really didn't jump up and down like that. I'm exaggerating. Yes, Father. Yeah, Father. would go like, yeah, I want to go. I'd say, what are you doing to go to heaven, gentlemen? You know what they'd say to me? I can't even believe this. But they would say, oh, we go to Mass once a week for about 45 minutes to an hour. When it's a good day, we can't go golfing or something. We feel like it. And we try to be good people. <clears throat> Wrong answer, gentlemen. Do you mean to tell me, gentlemen, that it's easier to go to heaven than it is to win a state champion football game? Is that what you're trying to tell me? So God is Barney. I love you. You love me. Okay, to be a state champion, to be successful in business, you're going to have to put a lot of time, a lot of energy. You're going to have to work, 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 work just to make a million dollars a year. Ooh, and you're going to drop that anyway. It ain't going to matter. You know, ooh, I made a million dollars. Who to be a state champion football player? Our team won uh, about 10 years ago, and now it is. We are state champion football players. huh? We beat Central Bucks West. Central Bucks West did not lose a game. Their seniors never knew what it was to experience a loss. They hadn't lost a game in 59 games. They met our kids in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and in overtime, we beat them. Front page of the USA Today. Cathedral Prep beat Central Bucks West. These kids were the crap, huh? They were like, whoa. Everything. They were heroes. They came back to Erie, you know, big time Erie. And they got up and they got the key to the city and everybody came. It was all the greatest thing ever. Now they're already graduated from college. They're has-beens. When they get to be my age, they'll tell their sons, when I was your age, son, I was a state champion football player. And the kids are going to say, shut up, Dad. You're just fat and bald. Nobody cares. Huh? And yet we put all this time and energy and the things that are passing. Boom, 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 boom. Hours, hours, hours. Work, work, work. The things that are passing. In our eternal life, we give the minimum and expect the greatest reward there is. You ever think about what heaven is or eternity? Let's say you live to be 105. Let's say you give you a long life. Let's take a... Uh, 
Oh, the smallest particle known to man, what is it, an atom, the smallest particle of an atom, whatever, quartz, whatever it is in there. And let's take that and reduce it by a billion. You got that? That's your time on earth if you live to be 105. Pretty poop. Not even that. Not even that. Anyway, it's gone. Do you ever think of what eternity is? Eternity is a man who's over at the beach. We have beach in Erie. And he goes and he gets on the beach and he takes one little grain of sand. One little bitty, bitty grain of sand. And he puts it on his fingers. One little grain of sand. And this is an eternal man. And this eternal man, it takes him 10,000 years to make one step. From here to here, 10,000 years. To take another step, it takes another 10,000 years. So from there to there, it takes this man 20,000 years. So here's this man with one little grain of sand and slowly, very slowly, walks to the top of Mount Everest. It takes him billions and billions of years to get to the top of Mount Everest. When he gets to the top of Mount Everest, he drops this little grain of sand at the top. Then slowly turns around and 10,000 years of steps slowly starts walking back to that original place he started. Grabs another grain of sand. And starts the process again. When this man has taken every grain of sand from every beach around the whole world, every grain of sand from every desert from the whole world, every grain of sand from the bottom of every ocean and every lake from the whole world, and stopped it, if you could, put it on the top of Mount Everest. When he's done with every grain of sand from all over the world, 10,000 years a step, when he's finished, eternity is just beginning. And yet what we do with this little time on earth determines our eternity. So what do you put your time and energy into? Your soul, which is eternal, everlasting life, which goes on forever and ever and ever? Or just in your body? You know, I know people that will sit there and work out for hours on their stomach, huh? To get ripples in their stomach. I had a kid once stub me and says, Look at Father, I got a six-pack. Whoa. I said to him, Look at me, I got a case. Whoa. Uh, ooh, you got a six-pack. And yet these people do all this thing to pass. Again, one of the kids who went to become a prophet wasn't from prep, he was from another school. He was one of my kids. But when I first got ordained 18 years ago, I've been ordained 18 years, freaks my out. But anyway, here's this kid. And he calls me up one day and he says, Hey, uh, Father, you want to go play racquetball? And I said, I don't know how to play racquetball, Sean. He says, I'll teach you. Sure. So we went down to this place and we start playing racquetball. He went to become a professional football player, kicker for Real close to here, as a matter of fact. Anyway, we're getting up there and we're starting hitting the ball back and, you know, not back and forth. You know how racquetball goes. And so he sits there and he says, uh, well, I wasn't ordained yet. He says, now, Larry, you can't really learn how to play racquetball unless you sit there and play the game. So let's start playing the game. I said, okay, Sean, let's start. And as soon as we started, he became very competitive. I'm competitive too, but I'm not the biggest athlete there ever was. So here's this college kid and here's this 29-year-old guy. And we're sitting, boom, boom. And as soon as he started, bam, bang, he killed me one game. Bang, two games. I almost won the third game, but I lost. Four games, five games, this guy beat me. And as he beat me five games, he was like, yeah, in your face, yeah. And I'm saying, oh, yeah, you're tough. Yeah, I've never played before. You beat me five games. Oh, I'm mad. And so I got to take a shower, you know. Uh, I'm thinking, I'm going to kill a miserable son of a son. So as I'm going there taking a shower, it's one of those group showers. One of those group showers, I don't know if they have them up here. But they have them in the gym at our place. This is before the scandal, of course. But anyway, so here I am in the shower. I'm all by myself in the shower. That's a nice thing. This guy comes walking in. He was a college kid, about 18, 19 years old. As he comes walking in, I'm starting to walk out. But he looks at me and he says, I spend two hours working out every day on my body. Now, this worried me because we're the only two in the shower. And he's telling me about how much time he's working on his body every day, huh? And I'm thinking, oh, think fast, think fast. I said, Sean... 
how much time do you spend working out on your soul? He said, honestly? I said, honestly. He goes, about two minutes. <laughs> Let's get this right. I said, who are you living for? He said, I go to church on Sunday, Larry. I said, listen, Peggy, and I didn't ask you if you went to church on Sunday. I said, who are you living for? And he says, uh, I guess myself. I said, oh, I guess so. I said, let me get this right. You spend uh, working two hours every day on your body, on your stomach. Because, again, he used to love to talk about his ripples in his stomach. Look at my ripples. He's now 36-year-old. He has ripples like I do. He has a case. But anyway, but in those days, oh, look at me, my ripples. And I said, Sean, if you're lucky, darn lucky, you're going to live to be 100. But you're a football player, so you're going to probably drop dead about 50. And when you drop dead about 50, they're going to throw you in a hole six foot deep. They're going to throw some dirt on you, and everyone's going to go home and eat potato salad. I've been to a lot of funerals in my life. And never once, I don't know, maybe you're different. But have you ever been to a funeral? Have you ever been to one? And someone says... Did you ever see the ripples in that guy's stomach? <laughs> Have you ever been to any funerals or talk, people talked about the ripples in the guy's stomach? No. Why? Because the ripples now are worm meat. Muncha, muncha, muncha. You know, but all this time and energy. Think about how much time we spend to make our bodies beautiful. Same in the physical life, same in the spiritual life. Who and what are you living for? Do you live for this earth or are you living for eternity? This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Our time on earth is the first sentence of eternity. And yet again, what we do in this first sentence determines where our forever will be. You do know the theme song of everybody in hell, don't you? I did it my way. You like that song? You're going to love hell. They sing that every day down there. And it makes us, oh, I did it my way. Yep, eternal damnation. The people in heaven sit there and say, I did it God's way. We can even live our Catholicism our way. It's my way. It's the way I was brought up, and that's the way it is. What if God tells you to change? You better do it His way, you're going to hell. When was the last time you heard a good homily on hell, huh? No one even gives them anymore. That's why I'm not allowed in a lot of places. But the reality is, we got to know the consequences of our actions. The way I live my life has consequences. The way you practice to learn to be a football player, basketball player, ice hockey player has consequences. The way you work or don't work at your job has consequences. How much more for our eternal life has consequences? And what you and I got to do is to make sure we die to ourselves and let Jesus Christ bring the kingdom of heaven within us. Because, of course, you all know that we're saved by grace. Free gift of God. You know, if you drop dead tonight, <laughs> boom, and you stand before God and He says, okay, why should I let you into heaven? And if you sit there and say, well, I went to church every Sunday, <laughs> you're going to hell. <gasps> well... I tried to be a good person. My, I have a car out there. My license plate and my trailblazer outside says, You are good. You can say, I was a good person compared to Hitler. I was a great person. <clears throat> Nowhere in the Bible does it say good people go to heaven. You're going to hell. <laughs> I obeyed all the commandments. <clears throat> no, can't do it. John Paul II, my hero. John Paul II goes before God a couple of years ago. 
And he says, okay, John Paul, why should I let you in heaven? If he would have said, I was the Pope. Hell, there's only one reason. This is the Catholic teaching, you know. But I'm amazed how many people don't get it. How many people don't know it? If you and I stand before God tonight, and he says, why should I let you in heaven? The only answer that's going to get you through those pearly gates is because Jesus Christ, your son, died for my sins. It's what he did, not what we do. So if we're entering into the kingdom, it's going to be because... Galatians 2, 19 and following, my favorite verse of the Bible. You better memorize it. You all read the Bible every day, right? Oh, we'll talk about that next talk. But anyway, because it says, I have been crucified with Christ. So the life I live now is no longer mine. It's Christ who lives inside of me. I still live my human life. Yep, I still got to go to work. I still got to take care of the kids. I still got to take care of the dog. But it's a life of faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Because after you say, oh yeah, because Jesus died for me, you know what God the Father is going to look at you and say? Prove it. And then you're going to have to show him the way you lived your life. Did you live for him, building his kingdom? Or did you live for you, building your kingdom? Just a thought. Aren't you glad I came tonight? (laughs) H-E-N-O is love today and forever. Amen. The men who attend these men's nights at St. Patrick's Church take a break right after the Mass for a short time of fellowship and refreshments. Following this time, they regather in the worship space for their speaker. Last November, Father Larry Richards drove in from his pastorate in Erie, Pennsylvania. Here is Father Larry with his talk, Truth. Okay, let's pray. In the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord Jesus, you're the only thing that matters. Help us to be men after your own heart. Help us to be men that seek you above all things. Help us to be men that throw down our lives, lay down our lives, and are crucified with you. We may be examples to the world what it is to be a man in you, Christ. We beg you these things, Jesus, in your most holy name. Amen. Now, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Okay. Those of you who are older, over, I'm 46, so you've got to be my age or older. That's quite young, though, isn't it? Say yes, Father. You betcha. If you ever look on the website, they sit there and say, Father, you don't look the same. You look a lot older in face-to-face. I say, shut up. It's just part of it. It's getting older. Gray hair is the sign of maturity, and it's a crown of, I forget what it is, virtue or something in Proverbs. But anyway, those of you who are older will know from when you were little kids and the way it used to be. I'm one of those uh, restorationists, I guess, in some ways, because and the church is going back there, in case you're wondering. It's going back. And all the John Paul II in there and uh, Benedict XVI, we're going back to basics. But it used to be when I was a kid and when some of you were kids, you'd get a religious ed book and a religious ed book would have a crucifix on it or the Blessed Mother on there. And in the last 30 years, what do you get in religious ed books? Rainbows and butterflies. And, you know, that's why you ask kids what's life about. I don't know. Because they don't learn. Whereas you know, when I taught at the high school and still to this day, the teaching the basics. So those of you know about the meaning of life. You know, sometimes kids are sitting there saying, what's the meaning of life, man? Because it's a Friday night and they have nothing better to do when they're on a corner and sitting there and you're drinking some stuff that's not Pepsi or they're smoking some stuff that's not cigarettes and they're going, <coughs> hey, man, what's the meaning of life? And someone will get up and say, I don't know, life sucks. It just sucks. People die and kill other people and people get cancer and life sucks. I don't know what the meaning of life is. What do you think the meaning of life 
I don't know. I just want to be happy. What do you think the meaning of life is? I'm going to make a million dollars. You watch. I'm going to make so much money. I'm going to, everybody's going to look at me and respect me. What do you think the meaning of life is? I don't know. I'm going to get every girl I can, every single girl. I'm going to get them all. And they sit there, and everybody has their meaning of life. But those of us who are older know the meaning of life. It was taught to us when we were children. Who made me? God made me. Why did God make me? This is the meaning of life. God made me to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world so I can be happy with him forever and the next. The meaning of life, that was free. You don't have to go spend up the thing. It's not just in the Baltimore Catechism. It's in the Universal Catechism. This isn't something that's changed. People don't know it, but it's still the teaching of life. They come to know God, love God, serve God. Now, the first way we've got to come to know God, of course, is in prayer. And we're going to come to that in a minute. I hinted a little bit about this in the Word of God. Gentlemen, how many have their Bibles? Let me see. We're with you now. I want to see the Bibles. One. Oh, Michael knew. <laughs> the rest of you are an extra hundred years in purgatory. Okay, so the reality is, you know, why is it that we don't have our Word of God? This is God's Word. And to come to know God, you got to spend time with the Word of God. You know, ignorance of Scripture, says St. Jerome, he's one of our saints, you know. Ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. That if you don't know the Word, you're not going to know Jesus. I do a lot with men's conferences. I've given, I've talked at least 20 men's conferences. And I do a lot with Protestants, promise keepers. And I love when I'm at promise keepers because they all bring out their Bibles, of course. And they're all like, oh, they think the poor Catholic priest, that poor slob, doesn't know Scripture. Oh, Father. Oh, I love it. And I'll sit there and I'll say, okay, gentlemen, open up your Bibles. And they all have it out. And I say, I want you to open to Sirach chapter 2. And they're sitting there. Oh, you don't have that one, do you? Oh. Yeah, I'm going to hell. But I'm going to love it. But the reality is, I'll sit there and I'll say, oh, okay. Now, everybody, we followed, just for your own sense, we follow the Septuagint, Right? The Septuagint is the 70. We have seven more books in our Old Testament than Protestants do, correct? Say yes, Father. Yes, Father. Why? Because we follow the Septuagint. Why? Because Jesus followed the Septuagint. We follow the same Old Testament that Jesus had and followed. Huh? Now, at 70 A.D., something bad happened. What was that? The destruction of the temple, right? Now, there was two types in the Sahedron. There were the Pharisees and there were the Sadducees, right, that ran the Sahedron. Now, the difference, of course, was, was Pharisees believed in life after death. They believed in resurrection. Sadducees did not believe in life after death. That's why they're so sad, you see. You got it? Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, a lot of the Pharisees, of course, became Christians after the resurrection. Now, after the destruction of the temple, most of the Sahedrin left with Sadducees. And when they came together, and it's much more complicated, but I'm simplifying it. When they came together and said, okay, we've got to refocus now. Now the temple has been destroyed. We've got to focus on our scripture. And they threw out seven books of the Old Testament. You know why they threw out these seven books of the Old Testament? Because they all had to do with resurrection, life after death. And so they got rid of it. You know, that's why we keep it. And it's part of our actual canon. It's for us, not apocryphal. It's the canon. And so, again, when I sit there and like they'll come up to the promise keepers and I'll go, where do I get that book? A Sirach chapter 2, if you're a man, is a great book. Sirach 2, my son, when you come to serve the Lord, prepare yourself for trials. Yeah, go to war, son. It's time. Be a man. 
And that's what the Scripture calls. And so they always sit there and say, where can I get one of those? So you got to please buy a Bible if you don't have one. And then after you buy it, what do you got to do with it? Read it. I love to say no Bible, no breakfast, no Bible, no bed. No Bible, no breakfast, no Bible, no bed. That means, gentlemen, you don't eat breakfast in the morning till you read from the Word of God, and you don't go to bed at night until you read from the Word of God. That means you start the day listening to God, and you end the day listening to God. And sometimes I get smart Alex to say, well, Father, I don't eat breakfast. No Bible, no lunch, no Bible, no bed. I don't care what it is. But you've got to discipline yourself. If we go to the Scripture, isn't this an interesting verse in Proverbs Chapter 5, verse 23. He will die from lack of discipline. To be a follower of Christ, to be a disciple, means that you're a disciplined man. You've got to be disciplined. And one of the things is a prayer life is to have a disciplined prayer life. So often when people go to confession, I'll say, Oh, did you pray yesterday? Ah, oh, Father, I try to pray every day. Oh, excuse me. Do you try to eat every day? Well, no. What's more important, praying or eating? Praying. You can eat every day and die when you're 50. Doesn't matter much. If you pray every day, you'll live forever. If it comes to a choice, am I going to eat today? Am I going to pray today? You better decide. Prayer is more important. I used to ask my guys at school, I'd say, gentlemen, did you pray yesterday? Oh, yes, father. No, father. Oh, did you uh, eat yesterday? Yep, father. Of course. What are you talking? I'm a football player. Oh, you love food more than you love God. Did you pray yesterday? Oh, no, father. I tried, but you know how it is. I'm very busy. Oh, okay. Did you watch TV yesterday? Oh, yeah. How long? Three hours the game was on. Oh, you love TV more than you love God. Did you talk to your girlfriend yesterday? Yeah, I did more than talk. (laughs) Oh, did you pray yesterday? No. Huh, because you love your girlfriend more than you love God. My people die because of lack of discipline. And gentlemen, you don't have to spend hours on it. See, what happens is so often men decide they're going to read the Word of God and they're going to read it from cover to cover because then I can say, I read the whole Bible from cover to cover. And you inflate your pride. That is not why God wrote this Bible, so you could get more proud about you. I read the Bible from cover to cover. You read the Word of God, so your life will change. And so that means you have a choice every day. Are you going to live your will, or are you going to live God's will? Well, I'm going to live God's will, Father. Well, how are you going to know what God's will is? Oh, you've got to go to His Word. Because if not, you're going to make God's will your will. Well, this is what I want to do, and this is what God wants me to do. No, it isn't. Priests, of course, we say the office of readings and that. And in our second reading is from a second century homily. And it was like whoever wrote the sermon is yelling at the early Christians because it says, boy, you sure do sound pretty when you talk. You sure do talk about, oh, good, we're called to love each other. But then you preach that and you talk about that, but you sure don't live it. You hate each other. There's people you work with, you talk about. There's people you put down. That's why nobody wants to be a follower of Christ, because you don't live it. And to live these things means that we're men of discipline. And so, again, the best way to read the Word of God, gentlemen, is you sit there. And this is what white duct tape is for, see? White duct tape is to keep your Bible together. You spend time, and you actually write in it, huh? And then it gets old and that. You can't sit there and hurry up and buy a Bible tonight at Walmart, a Catholic Bible. It says Catholic edition. Make sure you get one. And throw it out and let it in the rain so tomorrow it looks like you've been reading it your whole life. That won't count. you got to sit there and start with the letters. They're very simple. Paul was writing a letter, and God used it as his word. And this is how you read the word of God every day. You sit there, and before you start, you pray the Holy Spirit, Spirit of the living God, speak to my heart 
your word. And after you give him permission to speak to you, then you slowly start reading. And as you slowly start reading, you can do it until God takes a two by four and whacks you over the head. And I'm here to tell you, you will never go to God's word where he doesn't hit you over the head. And then when he hits you over the head, you stop, you listen, and then you respond. You stop, you listen, and then you respond. And a good thing you can do is you sit there and you take that verse. Let's say this morning he says, uh, like here in verse 30 of John's Gospel, chapter 3. He must increase while I must decrease. So God hits you over the head with that verse. You take it and you put it on a little piece of paper. And you take this little piece of paper and then you put it in your pocket or you put it in your billfold and you pull it out throughout the day. Now you've got to respond to God all day. You're now in a conversation all day with God. He says, he must increase, I must decrease. And he's saying to you, are you increasing or am I increasing in your life? And all day he's going to be picking on you, if you will. Are you increasing or am I increasing? Are people seeing you or are they seeing me? And now you're in an all-day dialogue with God. So you start not by talking to God, but by listening to God. And then you go to bed instead of just listening to Jay Leno or David Letterman, you listen to God. Then God lifts you up and he speaks to you throughout the day and then God takes you into your night. You start your day and you end your day listening to God. And that will help you in your prayer life. Again, most people, the way they pray is like this. You get married, but you never have sex with your wife, even on the honeymoon, because that's too intimate. Oh, my gosh. And so you sit there and you go in your honeymoon. You have two different rooms. OK, and every day you walk into your spouse's room and you go Shh, and you look at her and you have a poem memorized and you say that poem very fast because you got to do take your dump. Right. And so you got to go in there before I hurry up. And sometimes you take your dump first, except it's always funny when it comes to dumps, isn't it? When I'm doing a men's and women's conference or, you know, like a parish mission, I do a lot of missions and I'll start telling a story and the women will go. He said, dump in church. That is disgusting. And then I say, okay, women don't take dumps. They go, poof. But anyway, so whatever it is, you go and you take your dump or whatever. And then you might walk into your spouse's room and you go, shh. And you read her or you say very fast, you are the most wonderful person in the whole wide world. I love you. I love you. I love you. Thank you for being here with me. And please help me throughout this whole day. And then you go to work. And then as you go to work, you're a really good spouse. I'm the best husband there ever was. And you pick up the phone throughout the day and you call your wife on the phone. and You go, Shh, you're the best person. Thank you for everything you do for me. Shh, and you hang up the phone. Then you come home from work. And after you come home from work, you're really tired. So you go and take a nap or you watch TV because you're tired. And your wife has made you a wonderful dinner. And then right before you eat dinner, you look at your wife and say the same words every night. Some, not everybody does this, about 50%. Thank you for this wonderful dinner. And you're really hungry, so you have to eat. You never talk to your wife during dinner. Don't do it. Can't do it. You don't talk to your wife during dinner. After dinner, most people don't even look at their wives and say, thanks for the dinner. But sometimes they do it. Same poem every day. Then they go watch TV for a while. Then right before you go to bed into your own room, sometimes, unless you're too tired, because, you know, you're a very busy person. And it's very tiring, you know. And so, but even because you're a really good person, you'll work up the energy to walk over and you'll pull out your book of poems. And there's your wife standing right there. And you're really fast. You'll take one. You might say the same poem ten times. You'll say it very fast. And then you go, good night. Sometimes you're too tired. You can't even go over to your spouse's room. And then you go to bed. And you do this for 50 years. 
What kind of relationship would that be, gentlemen? Some of you are saying that'd be the best relationship in the whole wide world, Father. I could handle that in a second. Please, can I have that relationship with my wife? That would be a horrible relationship. And that's what most people do when it comes to God. I say my prayers. Really? Even tonight, I was going to make a big deal about it, but I thought, oh, <laughs> you can't. The Our Father. You ever see when you go to the Our Father in any church? When Jesus taught us that prayer, what did he say? When you pray, do not rattle on like the pagans do. You ever hear it tonight? Just listen to yourself. Listen any Sunday at any church throughout the United States. I'm all around the United States, and no matter where I go, it's the pagans rattling on. They have it memorized, and they sit there, Our Father, our name, hallowed be thy name. And I think God's sometimes going, Oh, here they go again with that prayer. Because nobody means it. Can you imagine if God the Father stood right here and you go up to him and say, Our Father, you are in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. What an insult that would be. And yet God's here at every Mass. That's exactly what we do. We go on to automatic pilot. I have it memorized. I say these words, which I know I've learned since I was a baby, but nobody means them. They just say them. That's why if you ever come to my church in Erie, PA, it takes us like five minutes to say the Our Father. People, when they're brand new, they don't know what to do. Because I'll say, don't just say a bunch of words. God's right here. Now you talk to Him. Our Father, who art in heaven, pray it from your heart. It's about a relationship. It's not about just a ritual where we say a bunch of words. The way we come to know somebody, the only way to know somebody, in my humble opinion, is to listen to them, is to spend time with them. Could you imagine if every time you went to see somebody and every time they came to see you, they just said a bunch of memorized words to and left? Would that be a good relationship for you? I bet you you would run away. You know people like this. You know you do. That every time they come to you, it's because they want something. Do you know people that every single time you see them, it's because they want something? What do you do when you see them? You run. When we go to God, why? Hey, God, I need something. You're going to bless me. You know, people actually come to me and say, Father, I'm mad at God. Why are you mad at God? I've been praying for something for the last six months and he hasn't given it to me. Oh, so prayer is about God jumping through your hoop and doing what you want. And if he doesn't give you what you want, you're going to be mad at him. Is that what prayer is? Ah, I not know that. Thanks for sharing that with me. Prayer is when we go before God and say, God, it doesn't matter what I want. I'll do anything you want. You know that's what you say every time you say the Lord's Prayer. Huh? Someone will come to me and say, Father, I had a bad day today. Oh, did you thank God for your bad day? I did not. Did you say the Lord's Prayer this morning? I did. Did you say your will be done? I did. Well, this is His will. Why aren't you thanking Him for it? Well, that ain't what I meant. Uh-huh. Exactly. When we come before God, this is the way we should say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, my will be done. Please bless it on earth as it is in heaven. Because when we come before God, we want Him, the Almighty King, to do it my way. That's the way we want it. And so that's the exact opposite. So when it comes to coming to know God, we've got to spend time with Him. Anything else? Like, let's say that one of my kids at prep wanted to meet some girl. And I said, come here, Joey. I want you to meet Samantha. And Joey says, okay. And I say, come here, Joey. And I take Joey and I say, Joey, this is Samantha. Samantha, this is Joey. And he goes, oh, (laughs) hi. And he runs. He would never get to know Samantha. Because the two things you got to do to get to know someone is spend time with them and listen to them. To get to know God, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to spend time with Him and listen to Him. 
And that's what most people don't do. You got to spend time. You know, St. Francis de Sales said, everybody needs a half hour of prayer every day. Except, of course, when you're busy. Then you need an hour. Father, that's impossible. I'm the busiest person I know. Just the way it is. I give lots of talks. I'm trying to run a parish of 850 families. I sit there. I have the foundation going. I'm writing a book. I wake up every morning at 5.15. I go to bed at 1 o'clock every night. But guess how much time gets in my life every day of private prayer? An hour. Period. And if I'm flying from somewhere and I get home and I haven't done my holy hour, I go down to church and I kneel there for an hour because you're the most important thing in my life, God. It's just the way it is. Now, when I first became pastor of my parish, I got up and I says, the women are ready to kill me. You know the problem with this parish? What's that? This was at Mass on Sunday. Can you imagine? Imagine me being your pastor. You better praise God every day for your pastor. That's all you can sit there and say. Father, you're the greatest guy there ever lived now compared to that Richards. Because I sat there and I said, you know what the problem with this parish is? The women are in charge. And the women were like, that's the problem with most parishes. Women do everything. And the men do nothing. So they, I said, I'm tired of men not being men. I'm tired of men sitting there and letting the women do it for them. It's time, gentlemen. And so I had some men come to me and say, what do you want from us, Father? I said, I want you to pray. Well, with me. Okay, when? Every day. When? Monday through Friday, 6 o'clock. For how long? An hour. 35 men start praying with me every day. 6 o'clock in the morning. And the first thing we do is we say the rosary. It's where Mary started. Everything started with Mary. So we say the rosary every morning, 6 a.m. And then we do morning prayer at the office of the church at 6.20 takes 10 minutes to say the morning office of the church. And then Mass is until 7 o'clock, which I have Mass every day, of course. And what do you think we do from 6.30 to 7? Nothing. Fall asleep. Who said that? Hit him. You know, slap him good. Give him a good punch. Oh, I used to love to do that. Somebody would say something smart, Alec, and I'd say, beat him. And then the kids would just pow on that person. So, anyway, he'd fall asleep. You listen. <laughs> you fall asleep. You listen to God. That's what happens. You got, you know, some people when they hear me, they say, well, Father said I shouldn't be saying my rosary. Oh, don't you ever. You'll never catch me without my rosary. Ever. The kids used to try to prep. I'd be at the beach or something and say, hey, Father, where's your rosary? And I said, you know, of course I have those uh, black swim trunks with a little white bark up here, you know, but doesn't your pastor have one of those? You have one of those things, but no, I really don't. You know, I become on senior, it goes fuchsia. But anyway, so here it is. And I'd sit there and say, hey, Father, where's the rosary? You little pagan. I always have my rosary. The only place you'll catch me without my rosary is in the shower. And you're not catching me there, gentlemen. But everywhere, you'll never catch me, you know, at the rosary. And the mother of God leaves heaven and she says, say the rosary every day. Guess what I'm going to do? Say the rosary. Now, I used to love to go in and do things again at prep. And I'd say, gentlemen, rosary check. And all oh, those little pagans better pull out a rosary. If not, bam, where's your rosary? Father, I'm not Catholic. I didn't ask you if you were Catholic. I said, where's your rosary? This is a weapon, gentlemen. I would love to do that to you guys, but I don't want to embarrass you. I wonder how many people, if I said rosary check, could pull out their rosary. Gentlemen, my people die for lack of discipline. Say the rosary. You know why? Because the rosary is the best prayer to listen. You know, when you say the rosary, gentlemen... You don't just say there and say, Hail Mary, full grace. It bores me, Father, because you're not saying it right. When you say it, like, like, for instance, a couple of weeks ago, 
I was speaking in Peoria. And so I drove to Peoria. Because oh, you can't fly to Peoria anyway easy from Erie, Pennsylvania. It takes eight hours to fly, eight and a half hours to drive. So I drove. And so I stopped at Notre Dame. It was snowing already at Notre Dame three weeks ago. And I go into the grotto. I love the grotto. And I'm kneeling there and the snow is blowing around me. And I'm, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. And I was sitting there meditating, of course, on the uh, birth of Jesus. It was just like that, you know. When you meditate on the nativity of Christ, you're supposed to be there. You're supposed to be in this cave. You're supposed to smell the manure. You're supposed to smell the urine. You're supposed to hear the lambs go, bah, bah. You've got to see St. Joseph. It was Mary is giving birth to Jesus. There's good Joseph. And he's the first human being to touch God in the flesh. The first human being to receive communion, if you will, in his hands. Jesus comes out of Mary, and there's Joseph holding Jesus. And then he puts Jesus on top of Mary's belly. And then you're standing there watching this. And then Mary looks at you and says, you want to hold him? And you get to hold Jesus in your arms. That's how you say the rosary. Or you're there at Calvary and you look at him and you see all he's naked standing there and all this stuff and people are screaming at him and you can smell everything around you. And as you're looking, a drop of blood from the hand of Christ hits you on the forehead. That's how you say the rosary. You meditate. You get there so you can become like Him. So you got to sit there, gentlemen, and discipline yourself. You know, and again, like I told you earlier, you want to be the best. I always call myself a spiritual coach. You know, a couple of years ago, I spoke at a men's conference down in uh, uh, Loretto, Pennsylvania. And there was a deacon who used to be a professional basketball player. And he come up and he's talking to the guys, you know. And he says, gentlemen, I know how hard it is to pray. It's hard, gentlemen. You know, so could you at least try, you know, try. Think about the steering wheel. And think about the steering wheel as ten things in the rosary. Hail Mary, full of grace. But I know, I know it's hard. And he said there, but just try it. I'm the next speaker. You know, so after he's done and it was good, and, you know, people usually aren't ready for me. I sat there and I said, wasn't that nice what Deacon said? And there, yeah, yeah. I said, gentlemen, I'm not telling you, oh, please try to say the rosary or please try to pray every day. You either pray every day or you're going to hell, gentlemen. That wasn't very nice. Oh, I feel bad. Oh, you know, that wasn't very nice. My people die for lack of discipline. Gentlemen, the day you drop dead, God loves you so much that he's going to give you what you love the most forever. Would that be him? If you drop dead now... Uh! Dead. You're gone. And God says, okay, I love you so much. I'm going to give you what you love the most forever. Would that be Him? And could you prove it by the time you spend Him? Do you fit God into your day or do you build your day around God? The greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. That wasn't a suggestion. It was a command. A command. You must love God more than you love football. <gasps> you ever been to a Notre Dame football game? They go nuts. They get there the night before. They fill up the basketball stadium. They do all this stuff. And then the guys get there, oh, about ten hours before the game and start drinking. And then they, have a, oh, they go crazy. Absolutely nuts. And then after the game, they go over to the Basilica, those who can get in, and they become comatose. 
And I think God's going to say to some people someday, how come you went nuts over a pigskin? But when it was over my son, you were bored to tears. Why can we not get more excited about God? Why can we not discipline ourselves, be men of prayer? The only thing that matters, gentlemen, is that you and I become great men of prayer so that everything flows from God in us. So that people, when they look at you and me, they don't see me anymore, they see Jesus. The point, when your kids look at you, gentlemen, they don't want to see you. Sorry. They want to see Jesus. Because you're not going to keep them alive forever. You gave them life on earth. You can't give them eternal life. Only Jesus can do that. And Jesus Christ is inside of you. So when your kids look at you, do they see Jesus Christ? You know, there's a story about a man. True story. Captured in World War II. He was a prisoner of war. And as he was a prisoner of war, he was put in a Japanese internment camp. And they treated him bad. But not as bad as a roommate they gave him, which was a Japanese man who was a traitor who was trying to help the American. And so the Japanese man, they tortured horribly. They tortured this man. And every day they would throw him back in that cell. And that American, who was a Christian, would take his food and give it to the Japanese man. And he would try best he could to wash off his uh, wounds. And he did this for about three weeks. And they tortured the Japanese man so terribly one day that when he threw him back in the cell, the American knew this was his last night on this earth. He's knelt down next to him. He says, you know, you're probably going to die tonight. You don't have to be afraid. If you just surrender your life to Jesus, you're going to live forever. And you know what the Japanese man said to the American? He said, if this Jesus is anything like you, I can't wait to meet him. Could your wife say that about you, gentlemen? Could your wife, when you go home tonight, say, oh, honey, if Jesus Christ is anything like you, oh, I can't wait to meet him. Could your kids say that about you, gentlemen? Oh, Dad, if Jesus is anything like you, I can't wait to meet him. Could the people who work for you say that? Oh, boss, if Jesus Christ is anything like you, I can't wait to meet him. You and I who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, by definition, are called to be Christ in the world. And the only way that happens is you and I pray, we become who we spend time with. So the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you'll be transformed. But you're going to have to make that commitment. So that's the first commitment out of you. The second commitment you got to be tonight is to really get to know God. It means you're Christ in the world. And so this is what St. John Vianney said. St. John Vianney's patron of parish priests. He said, this is the glorious duty of man. That you pray, which we just talked about, and that you love. That you and I, gentlemen, are called to be people of love. And that's real hard for guys, you know. Because uh, they think to be a lover, I have to become nice. Again, the guys at prep used to sit there and say, Father, how come you always sound so nice on those tapes? Because I have a temper and a half. I go ballistic. And I sit there, and some people, and I kind of like it, you know, in some ways it's a way of controlling people. You know it too. But it isn't of God. But those kids would know I love them, even being hard on them. I have a classmate, and he's a real gentle type. He would sit there and say to the kids, he was a campus minister in other high school, his name was Father Ed, and he'd sit there and tell someone, come here. And he pulled him aside. I want to tell you a secret. I think you're special. Isn't that nice? I could never do that. I could know. I never would say that. My way, I would never call a kid and say, come here. I want to tell you a secret. I think you're special. That ain't ever going to happen. That ain't part of my personality, huh? My way of showing the kids I loved them is I walked through the freshman hall in the morning. And as I'd walk down the freshman hall, I'd sit there, bang, 
knock a kid into the locker. I'd walk down and bang, lock another kid in the locker. And then about ten kids would try to tackle me. I'd say, gentlemen, you touch a priest, you go to hell. You understand? But those kids knew that if they needed me, I'd be there. Even if I screamed at them that day, and I hated their guts that day, because there were days they knew they could call me that night and say, Father, I need you, and I'd be there. That's my way of showing love. You know what love is? It means you're going to give your life for somebody. That's what it means. And to do that takes to be a real man. You've got to be strong to be a man of love. Take a look at this. That's what love is. And you don't have to change your personality for that. You don't have to become a tiptoer through the tulips. You can be a man and give up your life for others. Think about how many of our brothers are dying today in Iraq. That's love. That's being a man. To be a man of love means you'll die for the people you love. Don't ever tell a person you love them unless you're willing to die for them. When you went to communion today, that's what you just told God. You know that. When we say the body of Christ and you say, Amen, Amen means, I do believe. It means much more than I do believe. You know what it means? It means it's the amen stake when you're building a tent. The amen stake. Amen means I would stake my life on what you just said, Father. Would you stake your life that that bread becomes God? Because you know what? In our lifetime, especially in our kids' lifetime, in America, I'm convinced it's going to cost us our lives. Convinced. There are more martyrs in the world today for Christianity than at any other time in the world. That's a fact. Some places in the world this very day, if you become a Christian, you'll die. You'll get killed if you become a Christian. And there are really people that don't want us. So let's say, for instance, that some people came, these radical uh, extremists come walking in here and they lock all the doors. And they sit there and they have the machine guns all the way around. And they say, those of you who believe that in that box in there is God, you stay and die. Those of you who don't believe it, you can go. How many of you would stay and die? And how many would leave? When is it going to cost us our lives to follow Christ? It better cost us our lives every day by the way we live. So we've got to be men that are willing to lay down our life. And so that means every day when you and I wake up, who do you want me to die for today, Jesus? And a good way to make that very real if you're doing it is every day before you go to bed, making a good examination of your conscience and think, that I commit one unselfish act of love today? And if the answer is no, you wasted a day in Christ. You lived a day for selfishness. Did I commit one unselfish act today? Minimum. That means you're giving up your life in love. And then you've got to be men who just don't become people of love, but you've got to tell the people you love that you love them. Years ago, the same kid that I was playing racquetball with, I told you about it in the homily. Again, I'm sitting there typing at my typewriter. Remember what typewriters are, don't you? And this kid who was in college at the time, he was a big talker. And he stopped talking. And I, I turned around and I said, what's with you? And I'll never forget this. This big football player was sobbing uncontrollably. I mean, <gasps> and I can't take tears. huh? You know, and he, the guys at prep used to know you cry anything. I don't care. Just stop crying. I'm not a big tear person. This kid's crying. I'm trying everything to get him to stop. Okay, what's the matter, Sean? What's the matter? Just relax, relax. And as big as sobbing. I mean, oh, it was going through his whole being. And I said, what's the matter? And I forget what he said to me. He said, Father, I'd do anything if my dad just told me once that he loved me. The only thing this kid wanted was for his dad to tell me he loved him. And his dad showed it. 
His dad was at all his football games, all his soccer games. Everything he was, his dad was always there. Well, five years ago, his father died. This guy was then 31 years old. And right after the funeral, I went and he called me and I anointed him. And after the funeral, I went and I grabbed him and I said, Sean, who's now his 31-year-old man, I said, did your dad ever tell you that he loved you? And this big man again started to sob uncontrollably. Never, Father. His father was almost a daily mass goer. But he couldn't tell his son that he loved him. What kind of person is that? Sometimes people sit there and say, well, I don't have to say it. Really? What does it say in the Word of God? Oh, if, if we would read this every day, we would know. But let's go to the Word of God. Don't you hate when I get those little digs? And let's go to the Word of God. It sits there and says in John chapter 15, verse 9. John chapter 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Period. Jesus told the people he loved that he loved them. And then he says, love one another as I have loved you. Are there any question. That's not an option, gentlemen. You can't sit there and say, well, I'm Germans. Germans don't do that. Ah, yeah. Or you could say, I'm Italian. Italians, we do that all the time. That's easy, Father. I love you. I love you. You ever meet Italian men? You know, I have a lot of Italian men friends that are all around the United States. There's this one big deacon. He's a big Italian in Peoria. He's head of the deacons in Peoria. And every time I see him, big kiss on the cheek, and this guy's like 6'5", and he picked him like 300 pounds easy. Picks me up and squeezes me. Oh, I love you, Father. I love you. Oh, thank you. Don't love me so much. It's thank you very much. Okay. Or so, we're Italians. We do that all the time. Or, Father, I'm Irish. We need to do it when we're drunk. Okay, whatever it happens to be. But your culture should not determine whether you tell people that you love them or not. That isn't up for your culture. Well, it's not the way it was brought up. I don't see dirt on top of anybody's head here. That means you're not dead yet. You can still learn. You can still grow. God sent you the loudest mouth priest he had on this earth tonight to tell you what he wants of you. He wants you to be people of love. And he wants you to tell the people you love that you love them. That's what he wants of you. And again, that became clear to me a long time ago. I'm from Pittsburgh. Can you tell? I say yins a lot. Yins means you plural. You make fun of a priest, you go to hell, just so you know. But growing up in Pittsburgh, they often say my speaking style is like a, a north sider boxer. You know, I have a confrontational style and I'm, you know, a challenger. And so both of my parents were cops. My mother graduated highest ever from the Pittsburgh Police Academy. I always said she missed her vocation. She should have been God. She knows everything. Just ask her. And my father was a canine man. We had a white shepherd named Snow while he was a canine cop. Anyway, throughout these years, and the cops, they always thought I'd be a cop too, but it didn't happen. To be a cop isn't the easiest part of life, is it? Every time you get a call, it's for something bad. No one's calling you and saying, hey, I just want to tell you something nice happened to me. Every time you get called, it's for someone killed somebody, somebody raped somebody, somebody burglarized in someone's house, someone bit somebody, something's happening. Always bad. And sometimes, to deal with that, some police, like any other uh, thing, to deal with it, drink. And they got a pretty high rate of alcoholism. I got to know one cop very well. Because, again, growing up with cops, everybody hangs out together. We have our little ghetto of cops, if you will. And so, one guy became a very, very bad alcoholic. 
And so he left his wife and he left his kids in Pittsburgh and he went out to Las Vegas because we all know everybody's happy in Las Vegas, right? And when he got out there, he got a new wife, new kids, and he had a big blue Cadillac. This was 24 years ago. And when you had a big blue Cadillac in those days, you've arrived. Now you need Lexus. You got a Lexus, you arrived. But in those days, it was a Cadillac. But he kept drinking and drinking. He became head of security at Circus Circus, one of the uh, casinos out there. They kept drinking and drinking. So after a few years, they thought, well, this isn't where everybody's happy. Everybody's really happy in Houston, Texas. So he went out to Houston, Texas with his new wife, new kids, and big blue Cadillac. And he became head of security of one of the suburb hospitals there in Katy, Texas. Head of security of one of these largest hospitals in the nation. But they kept drinking and drinking and drinking. At the age of 45, quite young, isn't it? Say, yes, Father. Yes, Father. 45 years old, this man was dying of cirrhosis of the liver. 45, think of it. You're younger than me. 45, this man was dying of cirrhosis of the liver. I was a senior in the college seminary at the time. And his wife at the time called me on the phone because I knew them and says, could you come out and be with him? He's dying. And of course, I'm a seminarian. What else do we do? I'm going to life for. I went to high school seminary. Can you imagine? I've been in the seminary almost my whole life. Can you tell? Anyway, so here it is. I go out there and I flew out to Houston, Texas. When I walked into this room, I was not prepared for what I saw. Here was this man, 45 years old. 45. All gray hair. He had no fat in his bones. He looked like he was dying of AIDS. He was human skeleton. He was on a respirator. He couldn't talk to me. He had a right to me on a little blackboard. And I walked into that room and I said, you look like hell. Huh? My negative humor. Can you tell I have a negative humor? And I said, you look like hell. And he shook his head up and down. But he couldn't talk to me. He had a right to me. And I spent a week with this man. Anyway, after a week, I had to get back to school. I was a senior in college at the time. And i never forget my last time with him. I said, listen. I gotta to get to school. I gotta go back to school. But you know, I'm gonna be graduating. This was in September. But I said, I'm gonna be graduating in May. And it'd be great if you could be there. And he shook his head up and down. But we both knew this wasn't gonna happen. This man was gonna die. And so I said, listen, I'll pray for you. Doesn't that sound holy? I'll pray for you. It makes it sound so holy, priests and seminarians. I'll pray for you. And I start walking out of the room. Once I start walking out of the room, I wanted to get one last look at this man because I knew it'd be the last time I saw him. I turned around, here's this man, desperately calling me back, desperately calling me back. And so I'm thinking something's wrong, but he couldn't, because he couldn't say anything to me. He can only use his arms and he's trying everything to get my attention. So I come running back and I said, what's the matter? What can I do for you? And this man grabbed me. I'll never forget this. He grabbed me and he pulled me and he pulled me really, really tight to himself. And he's holding on to me real tight. It feels like it was just two seconds ago that he's doing this. And as he's holding on to me real tight, I said, yeah, I love you too, dad. And a little later, my dad died. The only time I told my dad that I loved him was on his deathbed. Why? Because he wasn't the type of dad I wanted. He was an alcoholic. And he was a mean alcoholic. Miserably mean alcoholic. And see, my dad was just like his dad. My grandfather was a street bum in the streets of Pittsburgh. We never knew where my granddad was. We'd be going driving downtown and then we'd see one of the bums... That was my granddad. And my dad swore he'd never be like his father. But he died younger of the same thing, alcoholism. And maybe the only thing my dad wanted was for his firstborn son, who was going to be a priest. You know, priests are supposed to be people of love. His firstborn son, not to judge him, but to love him. And I spent my whole life judging my dad instead of loving my dad. Christ only gave us one commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. The only commandment he ever gave. And then he forbid us. He forbid us to judge. 
And boy, we Catholics, especially me, are great judges, but we're not so great lovers. I am so glad I told my dad that I loved him before he died. That was the last thing I ever said to my dad. I have a good priest friend. His father was an alcoholic. He got in a fight with his dad when he was in high school. He looked at his dad and said, I hate you! And then his dad got in the car to go to work and got killed in an auto accident. The very last words this priest ever said to his dad was, I hate you. Words are so important. You just can't say, live it. you got to do both. you got to live it and you got to tell it. you got to tell your kids that you love them every day. You got to tell your wife that you love him every day. When I just do men's conferences, you know, it's really bad because I just sit there and I say, gentlemen, if you can't tell the people you love that you love them, you better look between your legs because there's nothing there. I mean that. You're not a man. You go ahead and you look in the mirror and say, I'm a wimp. If you can't tell your wife and your kids that you love them, don't ever think you're a man. I don't care if you can put 400 pounds over your head. You're not a man until you can tell the people you love that you love them. And you know what that's going to cost some of you? You're going to die. Good. You've got to make a decision in your life. Because let me tell you something. When you're laying in your deathbed one day and you're all going to be doing it, it's not going to matter. Oh, I owned a company. I had lots of money. Ooh. Hey, I lived. I made all this money. Ooh. No, and you're not going to care about that. I've been there at the deathbed of many, many people. I have a lot of friends that are millionaires. doesn't matter how much money you made. If you can't tell the people you love it, you love them. When you're laying in your deathbed, it's not going to matter how much money you made, what you did in your life. What's going to matter to you when you're laying there is your relationships. The people you loved. And the people that loved you back. And if that's the only thing that's going to matter that day you're laying in your deathbed, if that's the only thing that's going to matter, then live your life as if every day it's your last. You know what I tell people now? I say, I don't know what you want you to do. And again, you can blow me off and do anything you want because who am I? I'm just some priest who's going to get back in the car as soon as I want you and start heading back to Erie. So what? This is what I encourage you to do, gentlemen. You do what you want. I would like you to write a letter tonight, or letters, depending on how many kids you have. And I want you to tell every one of your kids, if you have ten kids, it's going to be a long night tonight, gentlemen. But I want you to write a letter to every one of your kids, and I want you to tell them you love them, and why. This isn't your time to tell them what's wrong with them, and how you're disappointed in them, because they didn't live up to your image. Woo! They're not called to live up to your image, or what you expect of them. They're called to live up to God's image, and what He expects of them. Your job is to love them. Let me give you a hint. No one has ever changed because they were yelled at or put down. I did a men's conference in Kansas City. It was an all-day conference one day. And I went out there and the poor people had me all day. And there was a kid in the back. You know, had the high black boots on, the GI boots, and he had the long black trench coat on. He had the earrings and the hair was going all over. And he's sitting there like this the whole day. I'm thinking, no, I ain't getting to this kid. <laughs> it's not getting to him. And so I had to leave because I had to go to Carmel, Indiana to give a parish mission. So I'm actually running out the door like at 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the afternoon at the end of the men's conference. As I'm running out the door, this kid grabs me at the back of the door. He says, here, Father, please, would you keep this and read this? I said, oh, sure. I'm thinking, oh, here we go. Tell me one of those I hate you letters, which I get every once in a while. And so it sits there, and this is the letter, this little thing like this. And all it says on the front is Pax Omni, peace everywhere. He knew Latin. Whoa. And I open it up, and it says, maybe one person in a thousand years 
dies from too much praise. Every minute, a kid dies inside for lack of it. Maybe one person in a thousand years dies from too much praise. Every minute, a kid dies inside from lack of it. Do we tell the people we love that we love them? So I really encourage you, gentlemen, everything I taught you tonight, if you do any of it, you'll never regret it. You never regret, oh, I went and bought a Bible and I read it every day. Oh, I spent a half hour of prayer every day. Oh, I started to love people and I start telling the people I love that I love them. Every day I regret that. But you'll regret if you don't do it. I promise you, you'll regret if you don't. So I want you to write these letters. And the way I want you to write these letters tonight before you go to bed is I want you to write these letters if by midnight tonight you or them would be dead. What would you want them to know? What would you want them to know? That's what you say. Because by tonight, you or them could be dead. Every day, live it as if it's your last one. Tell the people you love what you love them. Now, it's going to be hard to start this. If this isn't your family, some of you do it all the time, no big deal. But if this isn't, when you go home tonight and you go in and you give your wife a big kiss and you tell your kids you love them, they're going to think you're drunk. They're going to think, what happened to him? And they're going to say, okay, now what do I do? Well, <laughs> what happened? What do you want? Why would they be that way? And if you're a granddad, your adult children need to know this very much from you. Very much. Let me give you a hint. You have the power to change people's lives. And it begins with your family. You need to become a man of prayer. And you've got to be a man of love. And you tell the people you love that you love them. You got it? Get it? Going to do it? You better... The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless, keep, and protect you. He who is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Thank you very much. That was Father Larry Richards in the talk he presented at the St. Patrick's Men's Group meeting last November. The title was simply Truth. Following his talk, Father Larry climbed back into his car and drove back to Erie, Pennsylvania. Following this break, we'll welcome Bishop Carl Mengling and several hundred brothers and sisters who took part in the Church's right of election this past March 4th. This is Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. At the Easter Vigil every year, the Universal Church brings in thousands of new members. Many are converts from other traditions. Many come from no former church membership and are baptized, confirmed, and receive communion for the very first time. And some are received from other faiths. All study their way through the rite of Christian initiation for adults. But there are stops along the way where the candidate and the church examine the life and the intent of the candidate. One of these stops is held in early Lent. It is the rite of election. This past Lent, Bishop Carl Mengling, the ordinary of the Diocese of Lansing, Michigan, held two of these services. The first was on March 4th at Christ the King Church in Ann Arbor. Candidates from parishes across the southern half of the diocese were there, as were we, to record it. Rita Thurton, the Associate Director of Worship of the Diocese of Lansing, greets the candidates, and Bishop Mangling opens the service. Your presence here is testimony to your growing faith and your love of God. Today we participate in this very ancient rite of the Church. Even as early as the 3rd century, We know that the bishop, after listening to the testimony of the godparents and sponsors, chose or elected 
those who would receive the sacraments of initiation at the Easter Vigil. Acting in the name of Jesus and the Church, he would then record their name in a book. So, too, here today, we continue this ancient tradition. We also recognize our fellow Christians, those already baptized, who desire fuller participation in the sacramental life of the Church. When your name is called during these rites, please come forward and follow the directions of the hospitality ministers as we will all stand in the sanctuary. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I'm very happy to be here with you. This is one of the great events of my life every year to celebrate these four great rites of election. I know what's happening in your minds and hearts because my entire family and everybody else did the same as you're doing from another faith into the Catholic faith. But we celebrate today the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. Just think about it. How much God loves us that he sends his own son to become a new Adam, a new Adam, to bring us back to God, bring us to each other. When we think of Christ, we just think of those beautiful words that John gives us, and they guide us all our life. Just think of them. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way, yes. We're going on that way. I'm not done yet. Are any of you done? No. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the vine, and you are the branches. I keep you connected with me. I am the bread of life. I give you my very self to enter into you and make you sons and daughters of God, filled with my spirit. I am the gate that opens up the fullness of meaning, purpose, and destiny, and eternal life. I am the good shepherd, and I walk in front of you, and I show you the way. And it's a way that's bright because I'm the light of the world. Oh God, when we think of this marvelous reality and it all comes to its fulfillment in those final words, I am the resurrection and the life. Yes, we're going to live forever. We have an eternal destiny. And that's God's greatest gift, that this life of ours becomes the stuff of eternity. That's what we're celebrating here tonight. I rejoice in Christ, and you rejoice in him this morning (laughs) as we celebrate what's happened here in the drama that has been going on with each one of you who are at this point in your life. And it's a drama that I'm not done with yet because God loves us too much to let us go. Now, with that introduction, I think I'll take a nap. Let me say, finally, I'm glad to be here. If you remember last year, I said, uh, it'll be my last time. As you know, uh, bishops have to resign at 75, which I did a year and a half ago. Well, I'm still here and I'm glad. Yes. Let us pray. O God of mercy and love, you always work to save us. And now we rejoice in the great love you have given your chosen people. Protect all who are preparing to become your sons and daughters through baptism and continue to guide those 
already baptized, who desire fuller union with you and your church. Grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. The catechumens are called individually by name and presented to the bishop. The congregation stands and the godparents and sponsors are questioned by the bishop and affirm their desires for membership in the universal church. The Christian life and the demands that flow from the sacraments cannot be taken lightly. Therefore, before granting these candidates their request to share fully in the church's sacraments, it is important that the church hear the testimony of you, their sponsors, about their readiness. Have they faithfully listened to the apostles' instruction proclaimed by the church? Have they come to a deeper appreciation of their baptism in which they were joined to Christ and his church? Have they reflected sufficiently on the tradition of the church, which is their heritage, and joined their brothers and sisters in prayer? Have they advanced in a life of love and service to others? I now invite the whole assembly to please stand. My brothers and sisters, are you ready to support the testimony expressed about these candidates and include them in your prayer and affection as we move together toward Easter? Are you willing to join with us this Lent in a spirit of repentance? Will you hear the Lord's call to conversion and be faithful to your baptismal covenant? My dear candidates, the Church recognizes your desire to be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit and to have a place at Christ's Eucharistic table. Thanks be to God. My dear sponsors, continue to support these candidates with your guidance and concern. May they see in you a love for the Church and a sincere desire for doing good. Lead them this Lent to the joys of the Easter mysteries, and I invite you now to express your love and support for all these candidates. The bishop then asks the candidates if they intend to enter fully into the life of the Church through the sacraments of baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist. Following their affirmation, the bishop declares them to be members of the elect. The Church rejoices that you will be initiated at the Easter Vigil. I give permission to your pastors, parochial vicars, and sacramental ministers to do so in my name and to celebrate the rite of confirmation with any adult Catholics who have been in preparation with you. My brothers and sisters, we begin this season of Lent and look forward to celebrating on Easter the life-giving mysteries of our Lord's suffering, death, and resurrection. These elect and candidates whom we bring with us to the Easter sacraments will look to us for an example of Christian renewal. Let us pray for them and for ourselves that we may be renewed by another's, one another's efforts and together come to share the joys of Easter. O Father of love and power, it is your will to establish everything in Christ and to draw us all into his all-embracing love. 
Guide these chosen ones, strengthen them in their vocation, build them into the kingdom of your Son, and seal them with the spirit of your promise. We ask this through Christ our Lord. The Lord be with you. May the blessings of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit come upon you and remain with you forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The bishop addresses the congregation and then delegates the parish priest to celebrate the sacraments of initiation at the Easter Vigil in his name. The elect and the candidates are prayed over and the rite concludes. And of course, the bishop has the last words. It's good for you to know uh, that in the Diocese of Lansing, with you there are about 900 catechumens and candidates at this time coming in at the Easter Vigil. So we thank God for that. Isn't it, this is a great bunch here? Yeah, the choir. Yeah, good job. Good job. Good job. Good job. I also thank Christ the King Parish for this hospitality and for hosting us. And let's go forward. On fire! Amen. Fire. Yes. On this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ, we first heard Father Larry Richards in a homily and a talk he gave at a men's group meeting at St. Patrick's Church in Brighton, Michigan last November. His title was Truth. To close this program, as we approach the Feast of Pentecost, wherein we celebrate the birth of the Church, we heard excerpts from a rite of election for candidates for membership in the Church. The rite was performed by His Excellency Carl Mengling, the Bishop of the Diocese of Lansing, Michigan, last March 4th. A CD of this program is available for 850. Order program number 266. To place your order or for more information, phone 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506. Or email orders at avemariaradio.net. Putting on the Mind of Christ is presented by the Ave Maria Communications Guild. To assure continuation of programs like this, we encourage you to become a radioactive Catholic and join the Ave Maria Communications Guild. Phone 877-288-1077, 877-288-1077, or go to amcguild.org on the Internet. Let the word be heard. Support Catholic Radio. This is your host and program producer, Henry Root. Thanks for being with us on this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ. Until next week at the same time, may our Lord richly bless you and your families. This is Ave Maria Radio.